Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So the last time I saw Anna Day, we were both attending a conference in Dubai. That was just last month in February. I hopped a plane back home to Denver, and sometime after I landed, I fired up my phone and saw that she and her crew had been arrested in Bahrain. They were filming a documentary about the legacy of the Arab Spring uprisings when they were arrested by Bahraini authorities and charged with crimes that carry hefty prison sentences. Anna recounts that experience in pretty vivid detail, and getting arrested in Bahrain is just the latest challenge that Anna has faced while trying to tell stories from the Middle East. She was one of the first Western journalists to detail the rise of ISIS in Syria, and before that, she was one of the first American journalists in Tahrir Square as the Egypt Arab Spring began. The website Jezebel.com recently ran a profile of Anna that I referenced in this piece, and I'll post a link to that on GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com. And as always, you can get in touch with me via the website. Let me know if you have any suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover or anything else that might be on your mind. And just one more thing before we start. If you are interested in learning more about the situation in Bahrain, I actually served as the publisher of an ebook by the journalist Elizabeth Dickinson about Bahrain called Who Shot Ahmed? A Mystery Unravels in Bahrain's Botched Arab Spring. That tells the story of the murder of a young activist and his family's quest for justice. And I'll post a link to that on the website as well. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is my conversation with the journalist Anna Day. reporting in one of the most controversial neighborhoods in in the kingdom of Bahrain on one of the most controversial days, which is absolutely why we we went to Bahrain um, during that time. Um, As you mentioned, we were at that conference in Dubai and it was, you know, so close that uh, we felt, you know, maybe it was fate that we would be in the region so close to the day of Bahrain's five-year anniversary. Um, So we went in with um, very much understanding the risk. We almost anticipated deportation, and we were trying to get as much work done uh, before that happened. Uh, And that's primarily because other journalists um, have all been entering on tourist visas. There's virtually a media you know, blackout on Bahrain right now. So uh, most journalists have entered on tourist visas, been able to report for about four days before the police find them, and then they're deported. So we expected that. What we didn't expect was the charges to go from, uh, you know, entry on a tourist visa instead of a media visa, visa to participation in unlawful protests, terrorism, rioting, and all of these charges that face a much harsher sentence. So so what happened? How did you, at what point did you realize that you were being arrested? 
one of our colleagues earlier in the afternoon at these protests uh, was arrested. Now, we were in a neighborhood that's totally sealed off from the rest of the island, and that's how the government has cracked down on the Bahraini opposition movements. Um, it's just sealed off their neighborhoods from the island, uh, for, from the rest of the island um, and the main thoroughfares. Um, so, you're, you know, you're driving down the main highways of Bahrain and you can see little, and everything looks beautiful. It's it's a beautiful country, um, but you can see off the highways clouds of smoke. And we were in one of those neighborhoods where these ongoing protests have. These are mostly Shia neighborhoods, right? Yes, these are mainly Shia neighborhoods, and these uh, clashes with the police have happened nearly every day for the past five years. Um, so we went for the big anniversary protests, and uh, our camera or our sound guy was arrested while in one of the neighborhoods. He was up at the front helping our one of our cameramen film uh, the police you know, popped out uh, and all the protesters ran away, but they were able to grab our sound guy. And how did you get arrested then? Well, we called the embassy um, to arrange, uh, you know, to facilitate helping our friend. Um, so they knew we were there. Uh, they understood, you know, they understand exactly what's happening in Bahrain. So they knew that uh, we were in a very controversial neighborhood and that we would be arrested if we went over to the police station ourselves. So we essentially were asking them to go for us and check on our friend. Um, and uh, they even advised us to stay in the neighborhood overnight because they, you know, understand that it's a, virtually an occupation, that, that we weren't going to get out of there without getting arrested. Um, however, as the night went on, the protests continued. We continued reporting and uh, young people were so excited to see foreign journalists uh, that they started taking photos of us on their phones and tweeting it. And at that point, we understood that the government would know that we uh the government would know that we were there and that they might start searching the neighborhood for us. And every night they do nightly raids where, you know, people are disappeared. So, of course, we didn't want to endanger any of our contacts. Uh, so we um, managed to secure um, secure a ride with a colleague, a uh, Bahraini colleague, uh, and we got out of the neighborhood, met him. And then as we traveled down the road, uh, we came to a checkpoint unexpectedly and were arrested from there. Did your heart just sink when you saw that checkpoint? You know, we were trying to play the tourist card, but we kind of knew they knew we were there at that point. And, you know, at first I have to say the police were, you know, very professional. Uh, we had, you know, we answered as many questions as we could without our embassy being present and without lawyers. Um, but uh, the tone really changed a couple hours later when the investigation was handed over, we think, to the Ministry of Information. Everything's still a little bit unclear, but the investigation was handed over from the initial police who arrested us. And uh, from there, the interrogation went to asking about our sources and um, all sorts of things that, of course, we could not cooperate on. Um, and And then the charges also changed. Um, and that's why we do see this as a press freedom issue, that uh, everything changed, including our charges, uh, the minute we wouldn't cooperate about, you know, revealing our sources. Were you taken to uh, like a police station or, or a jailhouse? We were. We were at a police station. Um, I was moved uh, on two separate occasions and separated from the guys. Uh, we, you know, looking back on it, it seems 
because I was the producer on this shoot and I think they thought I had the contacts in my head, um, which I did. So uh, I think that's why I was treated differently. Um, But yeah, we were taken from this. I was taken from a police station, moved to another, knowing that no one would know where I was, that my embassy wouldn't know where I was, and that this was a police station that was a torture site in many of the human rights reports that we had read. Um, So while, of course, we were relieved that this was resolved so quickly within, you know, 48 hours, uh, during that time, there was a lot of uncertainty and, um, of course, fear. Like, how did you um, like present yourself or comport yourself when you're being interrogated at that site that you know to be a site in which people have been tortured? I mean, did you ever think that you might be subjected to some sort of physical abuse, or did you think maybe because they knew you're American, they would keep their hands off. And, and uh, just just for context, uh, for people who don't know, the, the United States has a large military base, uh, a naval base in uh, Bahrain. So there is like some amount of, you know, I think perhaps leeway that there's probably one might expect would be given to American citizens in situations like this. Yes. Um, and by no means do, you know, I generally operate on the assumption or even, you know, I I guess I, in principle, reject the idea that I wouldn't be treated the same as any other journalist um, is in Bahrain. But of course, you know, we're operating in reality. And yes, there's an American base there. Um, So even looking at our risk assessment on this, knowing that we are entering essentially illegally, which violates Bahraini law, which could get us arrested in a deportation. All of that was, you know, very much calculated. And we decided it was absolutely worth it um, because there is no ethnicity or sorry, race or nationality on earth that has a lower risk profile in reporting in Bahrain than an American citizen. We have the fifth fleet there. That's the one of the most influential military um, installations in the world, uh, and Bahrain really needs us. So, um, so that's that was a major part of our risk assessment, understanding that, yeah, the laws would be applied differently. But for a little context, uh, a reporter um, who is one of um, only four accredited independent journalists inside Bahrain, um, all of whom have been tortured or beaten at some point, And that's why they are now able to report because they have, you know, high profile cases because committee protect journalists or these other human rights defenders stood up for them at some point and made their name somewhat high profile. One of these reporters who's quite similar to me, young woman, works in t- television, uh, made her career in the Arab Spring, Uh, When she was arrested, she was beaten with a pipe, uh, electrocuted, her head was shoved in a toilet, and she was kicked and punched. Um, There has been no, you know, real investigation into what happened. And to this day, uh, the, you know, torturers are walking free while she's, you know, struggling to renew her press credentials. So, um, so that's the reality of, you know, press freedom in Bahrain. So of course we knew all of these things and that was very frightening, but we did think we had a layer of protection and are grateful for that. But of course feel a lot of guilt, uh, that our colleagues are struggling so much. Uh, what was your, your interrogator like, did he try to like establish some sort of rapport with you? They did a good cop, bad cop thing at first. And that's why I have to say there were some who were totally professional. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we tried to cooperate with them. But then they were, as 
the interrogation changed and as we got uh, more aggressive interrogators, you know, the lines started to blur. And then, of course, you don't trust the police officers who are being respectful to you. Uh, so everything grew quite hostile after that. And while, you know, I I would like to say I appreciated those, you know, officers who were kind to me and who, uh, you know, were, were professional, did their jobs. Uh, they were ordered not to let us call our embassy. They were ordered to, um, you know, not feed us, uh, deprive us of medication, deprive us of a lawyer, um, to, you know, move me on several different occasions. They, you know, they were, they were following orders. So I understand that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, they, they did violate Bahraini law, the, the investigation didn't go as um, as it should have. And, and the prosecutor was concerned about that. He wanted to bring charges against us, but we had been mistreated, um, which would jeopardize his case. So how did the embassy find out about your predicament and the predicament of your, your crew? When we were, uh, when our colleague was initially arrested, I called them immediately. So they knew about our presence and they knew we were in a high risk situation. Uh, and then, we had a full risk assessment with an emergency contact in the United States. So as we were being taken to the police station and I still had my phone, um, I wiped all of our electronics remotely of, you know, sources, information, and, and ju just wiped them so that uh, no one would be at risk from our arrest. And uh, then also messaged the emergency contact and said, we're being arrested, dropped a pin and said, this is where we're being arrested. It's not the police station. And, uh, if you don't hear from us in two hours, we, we anticipate deportation, but if you don't hear from us in two hours, do call the embassy. Uh, he knows that the rest of us are here and he has our passport numbers. So um, he would know that this was essentially adding to the initial case I'd called about. Uh, and so do you know if throughout the experience, like how did um, the experience of your crew, uh, three other other guys, uh, you're the only only woman, like did that, um, did their experience differ in, in any sort of meaningful way or were they also sort of similarly interrogated along the same lines? Uh, I mean, all of ours were a bit different and honestly it kind of felt like it, it was based on our personalities. Uh, one is very uh, chill, you know, Alan Mark, he was um, pretty relaxed in it and they were letting him smoke cigarettes and being like, why are your friends freaking out? But at the same time, had we not been freaking out to myself and another colleague, we wouldn't have been allowed to call the embassy. I mean, we were being deprived of basic things and, uh, and, and I, I needed to throw a fit, you know, at different points to a, I, I was being treated differently than the guys, but B uh, to even get the kind of um, support that we needed, even on the second day after a court order from the prosecutor's office that, was supposed to guarantee us um, the ability to call a lawyer so that we could come prepared to court the next day. Uh, that we we were denied that, and it was, and I was taken to a you know a hospital where again they've arrested doctors for helping people. I mean, all of these all of these places were just kind of haunting because they're in all the human rights reports. And it wasn't until again I threw a fit that I was able to finally call the embassy. So it was like a strategic fit throwing. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I certainly was uh, feeling frightened. So it was, uh, yeah, it was strategic, but also the emotions behind it were the real. emotions behind okay. it were certainly real. So how did you know that that you're going to get deported? Uh, well, most journalists have um, 
this our, our case was quite unusual for the charges to change uh and that's that's interesting for us and we're thinking about that quite a bit when we review our risk assessment and our planning for other places but um you know, Nick Kristoff, uh, there's BBC Channel 4. There's so many uh, teams that have gone, advice has gone into uh, Bahrain all on these these uh, media press passes, or sorry, these tourist press passes, sorry, tourist visas. Yeah. And uh, it was even just the week before that a Japanese journalist came in on a tourist visa and after four days of reporting, they found him uh, and you know, searched him, but deported him with all of his gear, for example. Um, so we just anticipated that because it seems to be how they're dealing with journalists. Uh, they're not granting many visas uh, to journalists. They occasionally do around, uh, you know, uh, major events that the country hosts. They host the Grand Prix at the end of, uh, in a couple of weeks, actually, at the beginning of April. Um, so journalists try to get around, uh, kind of get around the blackout on on. Mm-hmm. reporting on human rights issues by going there and then trying to sneak to these places. But I mean, it's a tiny Island. It takes 40 minutes to drive across it. So there's kind of really nowhere to, to hide. It's kind of a and police state, kind of hard to sneak around. Definitely. So, and we anticipated that we really did think that we would have a certain number of hours before we were um, arrested and it came a little sooner than we thought, but, uh, but we were prepared for that. We were not prepared for the uh, additional charges uh, that we face terrorism, et cetera. Yeah. So they charge you with terrorism. So, so how many years did they say that you'd be facing? Well, for unlawful protest, it was minimum two years, maximum 10. And I was at that point when I spoke to the prosecutor, um, I thought we were facing these, these visa charges and I was ready to cooperate and apologetic. Um, you know, it is of course, very sensitive, uh, time of year for, for the government. Um, so I was trying to, you know, be as cooperative as possible. I said, yes, I'm ready to give a statement. I already gave one to the police that, you know, we're journalists that we knowingly entered on, you know, a, a tourist visa and that, that we apologize. But just so you know, again, I did email the, uh, government in advance, um, for to report later in the month in Bahrain. So I was like, so you do have proof that I was planning on doing both sides of this story, like for the record, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I, I said, I was ready to get that statement again. He said, those are not the charges that you're facing. You're facing these charges. And he said, okay, well, you're ready to get the statement now. And I said, absolutely not. You know, I don't know what these charges mean in this country and we've been de- prevented from calling our embassy and, you know, deprived a lawyer. So, uh, I'm not ready to give a statement. Um, so did, um, did they confiscate your equipment when I was talking, I remember that was like Alan, you referenced Alan earlier. Those, he's one of your camera people. Um, that was one of his big concerns. Did, did, did they, do you have your equipment with you? Were you able to take it with you when you left? They confiscated everything. Oh, they stole it. They still have it. They still have it. So and this uh, is like fancy you know, virtual reality, virtual film. reality uh, filming gear. I mean, we're talking about twenty five thousand dollars worth of gear. Uh, um, when our sentencing came down, we were held in a different room, so we didn't even know what was happening. And all of a sudden, the police came in and arrested us or put us back in handcuffs. Um, and again, I'm in a different room than the guys, so we're like, "Oh God, here we go again." You know, or we don't even know what happened with our case. 
and they say they're saying that no, the charges were not dropped. So we're thinking, wait, what? Well, what charges were? You know, what are we guilty of, and are we going? Are we going to jail right now? You know, like what? What is going on? No one could answer us. And so on our way out, we see some journalists, and I kind of shout to them, like, you know this is a situation we've been deprived of this, prevented this, there's been mistreatment, et cetera, just rattled it off to journalists. And they're like, wait, they said that you're getting deported. And we're like, what? They're like, yeah, yeah. Like the charges are dropped, you're getting deported. That's what Twitter says. So there's all this confusion. And when we finally call uh, the embassy, when we get back to the police station, they're like, we can't get a clear answer either, but we understand that your case is still open, but they are deporting you. And that's best case scenario, because that means they're not fining you. And we're saying, well, they they don't have to fine us. They're keeping twenty thousand five thousand dollars worth of gear. So um, so we bickered about that for a little bit. But obviously, you know, we knew we needed to, you know, leave um, so that we could be safely out of the country. We were taken back to our apartment um, that had been when we entered. It was totally trashed. I mean, just everything thrown everywhere, all of the electronics and anything that looked somewhat professional. So even notebooks were um, confiscated. Um, Several thousand dollars worth of cash were taken from us as well. Uh, So that was, you know, really, I think that is a moment. And maybe it's just because I was so relieved to be on my way out. But to walk in an apartment and see that it was just, you know, such a stark reminder that we weren't safe yet. We needed to get on that plane. And so what happens? Like a government official just like walks you onto like a commercial airliner. So you fly like Air Emirates <laughs> yes. or something that just like the mechanics of that seems so bizarre to me. Yes. And, you know, and it was so bizarre because, at, at you know, at some level, all of these people are, are human and in different circumstances, we might get along with them. And, you know, we were trying to be respectful again, people doing their jobs. But we were also mistreated and, you know, are very aware that these, you know, police officers belong to a police station that is torturing the very people we were interviewing the previous day. So it's, it was just such a weird dynamic. And, uh, they, but yeah, they were very polite at that point and walked us onto a Gulf airplane, kind of said no hard feelings personally. And, and we flew to Dubai. Did you recover or do you have any film whatsoever, any footage from, from that, uh, reporting trip? Yes, we do. How? That's Are impressive. You me up, Mark? Oh um, yeah, I was setting you up. I, I read that. Okay. Yeah. No, it's okay. I mean, whatever. It's already on the record. Um, we, you know, we of course knew that our our sources uh, were in danger, and while we uh, were able to remotely wipe most of our devices, we had um, SD cards on us, the memory cards inside your camera. Um, so uh, the guys gave those to me while we were in the car you know, going to the police station with the police officer. And um, I went to the bathroom, put them inside me and had them inside me for the, until we got to Dubai. So um, very uncomfortable, but certainly less uncomfortable. That (laughs) is good for you. Wow. That is, that's, that's amazing. That I, 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 I'm sincere. That is, that is absolutely amazing. I mean, because listen, I mean, the situation in Bahrain is like, one of the most underreported human rights, you know, disasters in, in the world. And, and like the geopolitics of doing anything about the situation in Bahrain are just so skewed uh, in 
against like the the people who are demanding their rights. The fact that you're able to smuggle out um, testimony to them, I think, is just like a powerful testament to your own dedication to to human rights and, and to reporting, and it's like good for the world at large. Oh, thanks, Mark. And you know that was what we're doing the, um, the majority of the uh, reporting on. Torture is just so widespread in that country. So we understood. Yeah, of course, it's you know seems really dramatic. I guess I never thought I would be doing that in my career, but. Of course, you know, we were talking to, you know, minors, children who had been locked up and tortured. So so these are the kind of stories that we, we left with and, you know, the kind of responsibility that we were bearing. But um, I would also add that uh, we'd read all of these, you know, human rights reports in preparation for our trip. And, of course, you know, you can, it's always going to be more meaningful to see it than, you know, read a report. But I guess I do have to emphasize, I could have never imagined the story we were walking into, really being in these neighborhoods and seeing the level of community participation. I mean, there were grandmothers pulling us into their homes, giving us water and then sending us back out because they wanted this story covered. They very much felt that, you know, their their families and communities were under attack. So these, this family-wide resistance is, is something I couldn't have imagined and really just shows the the scale of what's what's actually happening there. Do you know like when or where or like on what channel we like viewers might or listeners might be able to expect to to see this this report at some point in the future? Well, we're working right now. It's part of a series. So um, we have three more. We shot in Gaza, Egypt, and, and Bahrain. Um, and we have three more episodes to shoot. So it probably won't be for another few months. Um, but in the meantime, uh, there are some breaking stories in Bahrain with, with colleagues of mine um, that I'll be reporting on in print or other medium. Uh, for example, Zainab Al-Khawaja, she's a human rights defender in Bahrain. She actually is one of the reasons that I learned about Bahrain. She was live streaming a hunger strike back in 2011 when I, I you know, kind of discovered the story of Bahrain. Um, she's been arrested with her child. Um, then there's uh, another human rights defender whose family I've been in touch with now for years, um, who is... Um, Ibrahim Sharif, he's inside, uh, he's been sentenced once again for uh, freedom of expression issues. I mean, they're just speaking out against human rights abuses and, and being thrown in jail. So uh, so I'll be continuing to report on these things um, while we are in post-production on, on our doc. Um, so I would love to uh, just kind of learn more about like how you got into this line of work. I mean, we met, I'm trying to think, it was probably like 2000... 12, 12, 2012, yeah. right. Okay. In New York around the UN General Assembly, you're both on a, a fellowship program. And I guess at that point, you'd probably just returned from somewhere in the Middle East, right? From Syria? Yes. Um, that was a very special weekend for me uh, because uh, that was, I came back to New York and the UN General Assembly where we met at the UN Press Fellow um, Fellowship. And uh I had just come from my first few months reporting in rebel-held Syria in Aleppo province. And, you know, it was um, undoubtedly the most moving uh, story I'd ever seen at that point. I'd never seen active combat in the way that I had seen. I'd never seen war crimes. And I'll stand by that statement confidently. War crimes um, that I had seen at that point you know, just from a couple months in, in Syria. So um, so I was coming to the UN General Assembly and the UN Foundation was, you know, just 
wonderful in, in hooking me up with experts at that event. So, yeah. well, I'd love to work up to, to that, to that yeah, moment. So, uh, where are you from? Are you, are you from like Idaho? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. The, a bustling hotbed of Middle East reporting. <laughs> of course. Um, one, uh, what kind of like, what, what did your parents do? Like, what were, are they into journalism, foreign policy issues? Both of my parents uh, were attorneys. So my um, father was in private practice. My mother um, was a public defender. And uh, they, but both of them were very much uh, activists. And my father was an artist in many ways and did all sorts of social justice projects through that. Um, and my mother um, worked, you know, her whole life for, uh, for access to um, legal services. Um, and that was something, you know, very early on, uh, I, my earliest memories are canvassing for get out the vote and, uh, and my mother explaining the difference between charity and justice. So, so I do come from a family that is, you know, very politically active. Uh, but no, I don't think that my family ever expected me to be in the Middle East. <laughs> so, I mean, how did that, that, um, sort of political activism and that, that sense of justice propel you to, to journalism and, and covering the Middle East? Like, how do you get interested in, in, in the Middle East of, of all the places and all the issues in the world, um, to sort of focus, a uh, to have like a, a social justice and, and human rights focus, like why the Middle East? So my political awareness, you know, uh, coincided with the with nine eleven, then Afghanistan, and then Iraq. And How old were you at nine eleven? Just to, to give reference for folks. I guess I was like thirteen or something. Okay, it's so like middle school. Maybe okay. twelve. Yes. No, I mean that, that's like a time of of like you know political awakening for most people. So that that would happen then seems significant. Yes, uh, and uh, you know, I just and sure you could say it was coming from a democratic family, but I, I felt a lot of, um, you know, skepticism towards President Bush, and, and not only in, in his handling of 9-11 and the kind of fear-mongering that was happening after that, but but also how he won, you know what I mean, that he, he didn't win. Um, so just that was my first political memory, thinking if I were you know running for president of the United States, I would want to firmly win an election. Not necessarily yeah. steal it. Exactly. So I just didn't think it was a very brave or principled move. Um, and that was my first political memory is just thinking what a coward. Uh, but so, <laughs> so strong feelings about Bush at a very young age. Um, and then of course I felt that, uh, the Iraq was a mistake. And, um, as I, as I grew up, um, not only did I, um, you know, start participating in anti-Iraq war protests, I was an organizer on that. I used to put but the body count of Iraqi civilians and American soldiers on on um, my dorm rooms, halls, like doors um, every week. So so again, very active on these issues, thought it was, you know, a crime against, you know, American values um, and, of course, the Iraqi people. Uh, so so I very much saw that as an injustice and an injustice that the media played a major role in, in not asking the right questions and not being, um, you know, incredibly diligent in challenging power. Uh, so I think that began my interest in journalism and its power and its responsibility and, and what's at stake when we don't do our job. Uh, so what was your first trip to the region? In 2009, I went to Jordan and that was on advice, um, on the advice of a amazing, uh, journalist, Jennifer Lowenstein. And she 
was a professor at my university, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and, and you know, her advice was get to the Middle East as soon as possible. She was telling me to go to Beirut, and my family was like, no way. Uh, so she said, go to Jordan. It's the Hashemite kingdom of boredom is what she said to me. <laughs> She's like, so I'll let your family come. But for me, it was amazing going there. Um, I was studying Arabic, but also uh, it was at a time, you know, when there was an influx of Iraqi refugees, Palestinian refugees, um, and so to be in Jordan at that time was a really um, exciting first taste of the regional politics. And again, meeting people who are the front lines of what American foreign policy looks like and how it affects people. So, so that was an incredibly powerful um, experience. And I have, you know, been back in the region almost every few months or, or living there ever since. <laughs> So where were you living when uh, the Egypt revolution started and how, and, and, and did you like get a sense from your reporting, from your contacts that like something was, was kind of brewing? Yes, we, um, I had studied abroad in Egypt. So during Mubarak and, uh, and I I worked throughout the region um, as a student. When I graduated from my undergrad degree, I um, got a fellowship to, um, study in Israeli university, and I'm very interested and passionate about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, and wanted to make sure I understood the Israeli narrative and that I was in a part of Israel that, you know, feels the conflict. I was in southern Israel, which gets you know rocket fire from Gaza. Uh, so, so that's what I was doing while reporting on my weekends in in. Palestine in the West Bank. So, uh, so that's kind of what I did at the minute I graduated. Uh, and then I had heard when Tunisia fell, I started hearing from young activists that I'd known as, as a student when I was in Egypt, saying that the same is going to happen in Egypt. Uh, there was a viral video from Asma Mafouz, a very famous activist, um, who we actually interviewed uh, on our trip to Egypt, which was so exciting, um, that said, you know, come to Egypt on the 25th. Um, if you have any dignity, you'll be out in the square. Just this incredibly powerful YouTube video where she shows her face, she puts her phone number out there. And so to just see that kind of bravery, when I understood very clearly the risks that these um, activists were taking, because as a student there, you know, there were students, student activists who were arrested while we were there for for our same basic things, you know, um, criticizing the government. So I just thought it was such a brave move, was very moved by it, was back and forth. Do I go down there? Um, and then, you know, I ultimately decided I'd never forgive myself if I missed Egypt's revolution and bought a plane ticket and went down. So what did, did you arrive like on like the, was it the January 20th, like, like right then? I arrived a couple of days earlier just to touch base with um, contacts in Cairo and uh, and and that's what was amazing. You know, I was there as they gradually, you know, shut down the Internet, essentially. Um, and so each day, you know, you would have to find a new way to communicate with these people because that blog was shut down or whatever. And they kept changing the um, places of, of congregation for the protest. So just the lead up was fascinating. But I remember the night before January 25th, I was in a, in a club in Cairo with, you know, the 1% essentially. (laughs) And they're all saying this is so obnoxious and it's never going to happen. And people need to stop complaining or they're going to get themselves in trouble, you know, just very pessimistic about um, about change in their country and, and human rights and, and democracy. And, and then the next day it, it exploded. So, uh, 
incredible, simply so incredible. Did you make it down to Tahrir Square? Like, how did you actually get there? And, and like, how did you operate? I did. I mean, I woke up to gunfire um, and it was like echoing across the Nile. And, you know, it was probably, you know, at that point, tear gas canisters being launched. Um, and I went to several different locations where they said that there were going to be protests, Cairo University, um, a, a pretty famous mosque, and, and nobody was there, then the U.S. Embassy. And nobody was there. And I'm like trying to figure out where everyone is because again, like the blogs had been totally shut down at that point. And, uh, I went from the embassy. It's a short walk to Tahrir square. And I started walking towards Tahrir and, uh, there was just flanks of police officers, uh, you know, just hundreds of police lined up for blocks away from Tahrir. So I said, wow, okay, they're, they're really nervous, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so I walked through the square and as I approached the square, I heard chanting, uh, you know, echoing from across, across the square, down the street on the other side. And I saw the police running towards the other side. So I ran with them and yeah, was there for the moment that the protesters first broke through uh, police lines to Dakar Square. It was incredible. Like, were there any other Western journalists there at that point? I mean, I, it seems like there probably weren't that many. Like, it sort of, I think, caught a lot of people by surprise. I mean, who are kind of viewing this from afar, like like me. I think there were, in terms of, uh, there, there were some bureaus left in Cairo, you know, so you had the and the wires, of course, they're always covering their beats from Cairo. So there, mm. so there were some journalists there, but then, of course, there was just an influx of, yeah. you know, Anderson Cooper. Everybody flew in yeah. for uh, towards the end. Like, so. did you have like a, a sense while you were there that like you were witnessing history? I mean, did you have like any sort of like opportunity to like reflect on the magnitude of what you were seeing? I felt it for sure. Because it was so unexpected. I, I didn't think that many people would come out. I kind of was, you know, coming out almost in solidarity for, for the risks that they have to take in the country to, you know, express themselves. So uh, I didn't, you know, expect so many people and to just see that it continued all day into the night and that it couldn't, the people couldn't be shut up. And that was the kind of energy that you felt um, from day one. And, you know, did I think it was on day one, it was going to topple the bar? Not necessarily, but I did feel that, you know, this, that it was meaningful, even if it hadn't toppled the bar, that kind of assembly and, you know, popular demand for what is right. And there are universal truths. I fundamentally believe that, um, is such a powerful experience. So, so I did think it was, significant. Um, and then it turned out to be, you know, incredibly historically significant. Uh, Anna, do you have like maybe six or seven more minutes to talk about like Syria, uh, Syria? Of course. Okay, good, good. I just wanted to make sure. So we're kind of running a little long, but, um, no it's cause the stories are so good. Um, <laughs> so, so you earlier, you were talking about, uh, you know, how, you know, we first met, I guess, right as your first trip back from Syria, but how did you actually, like, when was your first trip into Syria? What, what were the circumstances uh, that led you to go to, to Syria and, and sort of what did you see? You know, I was watching E-Team, a, a doc on Netflix, and I'm realizing that some of the early Human Rights Watch reports, video footage of, of a massacre is actually one of the first uh, first videos that compelled me to go. There are, there were Syrian activists that I met in Cairo who had always been telling me to come come to Syria, but 
um, getting a visa is, is very difficult from the regime. In the summer of 2012, however, the rebels took the northern border with Syria. So all of a sudden you could fly to Turkey and cross the border into what was free Syria. And uh, so there were some journalists who were doing that, um, primarily freelance, because at that point, um, you know, real powerhouses in journalism, Marie Colvin and uh, Anthony Shadid had already been killed in Syria. So the staffers had already pulled out of Syria. and But it was this enormous opportunity. So freelancers were going in. It was a huge story. And, you know, you felt like you were covering something that was not co- being covered uh, because the staffers weren't there. Um, and then you had this opening that the border was free. So, um, so I went in that time in August of 2012 and, you know, have been going ever since up until the last time I was in was last year. Um, and, uh, it was a very different time. Um, you know, I was able to work with young activists who were my peers. Um, the first time I did an embed in Aleppo, it was with Aleppo university students who barely knew how to use their Kalashnikovs and, you know, their school had been hit and they were defending themselves. So, you know, you had these unlikely revolutionaries who wanted things that we hold so basic and dear to, you know, American values, the right to vote. So these were the kinds of stories that I was covering early on. I was also there for a moment where, um, where there, these areas had been recently liberated. So they were not, you know, they, they didn't have the kind of extremists or banditry that they have to this day. Uh, so there were still technocrats inside. There were still doctors and lawyers and they were setting up the institutions that a free country would have. So I saw those post office divorce courts. I saw those things uh, being established in this brief and beautiful moment uh, where they were able to, you know, dream. Was there a, a moment when you realized that um, this, this dream, this, this moment of, of promise and hope wouldn't hold? I think I've been in denial of that and I still am. Uh, and I think it's, you know, a choice now to, um, reject the despair. And I make that choice because I have so many Syrian friends still working on the inside, whether it's Syrian journalists or Syrian aid workers who are risking their lives every day for a dream and for something better for their children and, and for a homeland for, you know, the ability to come home. Um, so I do reject the cynicism about Syria because I do still see, and I, and I pragmatically, I see points of opportunity that have not been capitalized on by Western governments or the international community. So there's those two pieces. Um, But, you know, in 2012, in the fall of 2012, I was working with a veteran journalist. I think I came to that UN conference and went straight back to Syria. And uh, the, this journalist that I was working with, it was me and a translator who was a young activist and this veteran journalist. And he said, okay, um, I'm, I'm leaving. And we said, oh, don't leave. You know, when are you coming back? And, and, you know, when you're in a place like that, you can't imagine leaving the story is everything. And it's, it's a war and, you know, we're, reporting on war crimes. I mean, it was just crazy. And he goes, I'll see you guys in the spring. And both me and this young uh, activist, shrank we physically got smaller because we i don't think either of us could fathom that this could possibly be going on this spring and again that was the fall of 2012 and it's now the spring of 2015 so um so there have been a lot of you know rude awakenings and i guess uh 
you know, even I talked to UN workers and they're talking about the 10 year plan for Syria. Um, and, you know, there are several plans, one for conflict and one for post-conflict or whatever that means, you know, and, and it's hard to hear 10 years because there's just been so much pain and violation at this point that I do think we need the urgency um, to just reject this and that there's not an urgent solution available. I think there are. Um, and, and so that, that um, Jezebel profile, uh, which is great, which I, I recommend people check out, which talks a lot about your reporting from Syria, um, sort of makes, makes a point which actually I hadn't realized uh, about you and, and your reporting um, until I, I read this article and then kind of put it in broader context, which you're probably one of the first Western journalists, at least, to report on the rise of ISIS before – ISIS was like commonly known among, you know, even people like me who kind of follow these issues somewhat closely. Um, how did the, 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 the article turned into uh, had like, I think a, probably a terrible title, which you didn't choose dining with Al Qaeda, even though they were ISIS at that time. Uh, can you tell the story of, of how that piece came together and, and, and how you um, ended up sort of making contacts with, with ISIS early on? I think my first trip to Syria, all of the broke freelancers were staying in this uh, shabby hotel. And, you know, there were Syrian refugees living there, but then there were also, you know, free Syrian army fighters. And then there were some guys who were not Syrian with wads of cash. And they spoke English perfectly because they were from the Gulf and they'd been educated in Western countries. So it was fascinating to kind of build relationships with one in particular became a friend uh, and watch how he, you know, started some of the early cells that were first part of Al-Qaeda. And then uh, because they were foreign fighters and ISIS has a more transnational focus, they, you know, uh, almost graduated into ISIS. So, so it was, and again, I have to emphasize, well, you know, the leaders of ISIS are these, you know, hardened guerrilla fighters from Iraq and, you know, they certainly have some expertise and are very conniving and have an ideology that's very calculated. The fighters that I was meeting were my age and young and looking for meaning and looking to stand up for something. And they came and were seeing the same war crimes that I was um, and felt very principled in in fighting and defending the Syrian people. So, So that's really how it started. And that's why this monster that ISIS has morphed into. Um, I don't want to say I couldn't have imagined it. I, I couldn't have imagined the current form that it is and how, what it's me- meant for the region and for the world. But uh, because I guess it is very pre- predictable for that kind of horror to grow out of a vacuum of, you know, despair and injustice. But uh, it is so shocking and haunting for me that some of these people that I met early on who on some level I can see as human um, are, are part of this, you know, international terrorist organization. Um, so Anna, what's next? Like, what are you, what, what's next for you? You're doing some post-production on the Bahrain story and your other stories from the, I guess the anniversaries of the revolutions. Yeah. So we've had um, a little bit over a month of decompression and getting organized. And uh, the next three episodes are in, uh, places that are very difficult to report as well, um, Syria, Libya, and Iran. So uh, while, of course, you can hear in my voice, I'm, I'm most eager about, about Syria and continue my reporting there. Um, I'm here in D.C. for the five-year anniversary of the Syrian uprising, um, and it was 
you know, again, a really heartbreaking but powerful scene even here in D.C. the past weekend. Um, so so we're excited to get back and reporting on that, but also, you know, making sure we have all our ducks in a row and uh, that we've had some time to decompress from Bahrain. Uh, thank you so, so much, Anna. You know I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Mark, I'm a huge fan of yours, so thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you all for listening. Huge thank you to Anna for taking the time to speak with me, for being so open and honest, and for just awesome reporting for the Middle East in general. Do follow her on social media, and I'll post links uh, on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. See you next time. Bye.